This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. So Nielsen ratings, you, you have you to be invited. Them. It's invite only. Okay. Nielsen ratings determine what TV shows live and which ones die. And <laughs> so this week I got a letter from Nielsen that says, have you ever wondered how radio, television, and other media companies decide what shows to broadcast or cancel? Those decisions have a lot to do with radio and TV ratings that are based on feedback from people like you, your household. My entire household has been randomly selected to participate in this important research study. The enclosed dollar is our way of saying thank you for considering our request. They did unsolicited send me one United States dollar. Is that legal? I don't... Can you send cash in the mail? I know it's a bad idea, but... I Can you? I mean... I grew up getting a lot of $10 bills in the mail for I birthdays. Guess, yeah, I guess for birthdays. So maybe grandmas are just breaking the law all over the place. But grandmas weren't being like, thank you for your for considering my offer. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for consider. Thank you for another year for re-upping for another year <laughs> of grandma service from me, your grandma. Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew Nielsen, family member. And Are you going to be a tastemaker? Dollar I would like to. I mean, they're going to call me and 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 make me take a survey. And when they make me take the survey. I've been told this letter also says that I will get an additional small cash gift, which Whoa. might just be another dollar bill. They are not specific. Now, I guess I wonder if it depends on the, my level of insight. Here's a question. Okay. We're going to get to this week's book, The Lies of Locke Lamora by Scott Lynch. This feels in, like one of those classic overdue intros. Yeah, one of those classic ones. One We're going to get to the like, book. Old ones where we don't talk about the book for like seven minutes. <laughs> Sometimes when I do research on authors we're revisiting and I wait for us to start talking about the author for eight minutes, uh-huh. I wonder how anyone listens to this show. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I want to know for your Nielsen thing, is it like when you um, are trying to get out of jury duty by saying, you know a cop could you are could you be disqualified <laughs> by like you want me to get, get out of no Nielsen no 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 duty. i'm just like are you at risk you know like you know a television critic like you right i like have i a have television a television podcast. podcast appointment appointment television atv podcast.com um yeah yeah i might be disqualifying maybe that's what the survey is about i don't know is, is there an episode of like have one of the questions is have you ever been on tv <laughs> You can't. Maybe this is a maybe this is a situation where the only way to win is not to play. Mm. But then you'll never get that second dollar. So mm, that's true. You got to run that grift. This dollar is lonely all by itself. It needs a mate. <laughs> Speaking of grifts, uh, we're going to talk about a fancy crime novel this week that I read. Uh, that was one of our Patreon recommendations. Uh, Allison and Amanda recommended it they praised its sense of humor and its subversion of fantasy tropes Ooh. 
I think it does those things. I found it. <laughs> which I of like, those things? Which one are you more on the border about? I'm more on the fence about the subversion of tropes, but that could just be because I have not read the other books in the series. Sometimes the line between a subverted trope and just a trope is pretty thin and like context sensitive. I also think it it like maybe not subversion, but for me, it it deftly just went around some tropes it like just chose not to engage with some that might otherwise be there we'll talk about it um andrew what do you know about scott lynch what is there to know about him i know that scott lynch scott to his friends was born in 1978 and one of the things i know about him is that he is married to sci-fi and speculative fiction author elizabeth bear oh sure who's won a bunch of awards so it's just like a very happy Sci-fi book family. Yes. I saw an interview with him where he was talking about how this book got published and how kind of bizarrely easy it was for him and serendipitous. And he references her in the background going, you're going to die if you don't acknowledge that this is not how it normally goes. (laughs) Um, He says in um, his Goodreads profile. Okay. And Goodreads, is there's a lot of information about like on Goodreads that I'm going to read on this show. But he says of himself, <laughs> The Lies of Locke Lamora, my first novel, was bought by Simon Spanton at Orion Books in August 2004. Prior to that, I had had just about every job you usually see in this sort of author bio, dishwasher, busboy, waiter, web designer, office manager, prep cook, and freelance writer. I trained in basic firefighting at Anoka Technical College in 2005 and became a volunteer firefighter in June of that year. Whoa. So that's like pretty much his deal. Yeah, he had I, a lot of odd jobs, and then he became a, a writer. Yes, I think this book came out of a forum, like a fantasy fan forum, and that he had posted, like what eventually became the prologue of Locke Lamora, and then mm-hmm. yeah, uh, the editor was like, "Hey, let's uh, let's make some more of this, please." So the the lies of Locke Lamora, the book was published in two thousand six, and it is okay. It's book one. In the currently three book, planned seven book, Uh (laughs) Gentleman Bastard series. Yes. And I just want to, I want to let you know, Craig, how this is going. The first one was published in 06. (laughs) Second one was published in 07. And the third one was published in 2013. Huh. And I just, what Mm. regulations can we pass Someone give to, Elizabeth Warren a to, call. To stop fantasy authors from being allowed to do this. This should not, it's just, like, you should, if you want to start something, you should be contractually obligated to finish it. Yeah. Within our lifetimes. <laughs> like, you can't, just, you just, you can't keep doing this. You can't keep doing this. I just don't know how authors. he planned out seven of them. Like, I get maybe you plan out three and that's, you know, allegedly what a lot of people like George R. R. Martin did. It's like, yo, I got three books. I don't like, remember how great. many books The Wheel of Time was supposed to be originally. Like, I I think it might have been three and then six and then it just <laughs> kept going. And then 12 <laughs> and then 14. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, I have read this book. The Red Seas Under Red Skies is the second book. And The Republic of Thieves is the third uh, just like I will revisit the idea of Republic of Thieves a little bit later because like there's a character 
that apparently doesn't even appear until that one that he spends two books talking about that I, my immediate reaction was, wow, it would have been nice to meet this person. Uh-huh. Um, so we'll talk about that. Um, he has referred to these as like a sword and sorcery crime novels, which is kind of interesting. All the characters are con artists. And I found a, an interview that was like a, I think a transcription of a wired podcast interview where he talks about it being a Renaissance era world where con artistry as we know it is not a very developed form of art. They're essentially the first people to play with the deep and long con. So they haven't seen Matchstick Men. They haven't seen Ocean's Eleven. That's that's the most fantastic thing (laughs) about this, about this universe is imagine nobody's invented lying yet. It's well, actually, that's an interesting way to think about it. Is it now? It, Tell me it, more. It is just because we're probably going to get into the book pretty quickly now because Scott's a pretty young author, and this is most of what he's done. Um, I think his website is like a little out of date. It's yeah, he hasn't updated his blog since 2016. His Tumblr seems to be slightly more up to date. Okay, but. I feel like that's a contradiction in terms just to say that sentence. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so there, like, that's pretty much his deal. He like, did, he's a guy who wrote pretty much this book and some follow-ups to this book. Yeah, he did. He did. He was making a game, a, a adaptation of like a recent rule set for D and D called Deeds Not Words. Okay. Um, which he gave a shout out to in his acknowledgement, which is how I heard about it. And then when apparent- was he when was he doing this? Was like, this around when like fourth edition came out and everybody hated it? I don't maybe because it was early aughts. I don't really. Eh, yeah, that was like I think third I fourth think that's edition. Around yeah, when um like I think that's around when I think it's Pathfinder came out. Like the one that oh adapted like this, yes. um three point five like modernized it in response to the fourth edition of D and D being really heavily influenced by uh, world of Warcraft yes, and other yes, like yes, more yes. video gamey things. And yeah, a lot of people who were into the more like classical mechanics of dungeons and dragons were like, this sucks. Let's take the open source version of the old D and D and make it into new. I stuff. think that's what he was working with. Um, yeah. And it was a superhero based one, but he did abandon it like wholeheartedly to go off and become an author. So that's fine. Now, it now exists as a game, I think, called Phoenix that you can find as a PDF. I just thought it was interesting <laughs> because, um, like, A, he came out of forums to make this book, which is kind of interesting. He emerged from forums. <laughs> like Athena. Fully Cracked forums. out of a forum. Came out of E-Bomb's world. Um, and this, the, the game that he was, like, making that he then, like, let out into the world was actually, like, taken over by people who were in discussion forums around that. Um, so like it was kind of a passing of the torch and also this book kind of feels like a story that you might start writing after playing a bunch of D and D like, how do you figure? So, okay, let's get into it then. Cause I think that it'll start making more sense. It is about a group of thieves, um, in this city called Kamor. Uh, in a made-up land, it's a fancy world. I don't know what to tell you. Most it's of the all like, pretend. Everybody. Most of the words in this city are like feel vaguely Italiany, like garista, and there's lots of like double Z's. 
and it feels like kind of mafia ish. So that's the like every every fantasy novel has or a flavor. Even, yeah, yeah they all they all have a language or a type of name that they just like add extra vowels to, and they're like, yes. look, look how different this world is from ours. And so this one's Italian. This city is explicitly because there are like other fake fantasy Italian. Yes. <laughs> Uh, there's like it's maybe like a a Venice or something because there's lots of canals and waterways in the city. This um, is my fantasy v- city, <laughs> Venice. Venice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, other parts of the world have like kind of different f- major phonemes, so maybe they are not as Italian as this city is anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the like setup for this story is that there are like different casts of thieves in this big city where cast c-a-s-t-e correct yes okay um there's like a vibrant underworld where um the ruling class has made a pact with them called the secret peace where as long as they don't rob the rich people (laughs) they're allowed to like do whatever they want and they kind of grow and have their own power. And so there's like a merchant class that just gets the worst of both worlds. So I guess this is this is like how defrauding shareholders is the worst white collar crime that you can do. Correct. It's yes. Stealing money from other rich people. Yes. Got so we'll, we'll re- I have a Theranos reference for you later. Oh, good. Um, I can't wait. So- <laughs> so I'm so psyched. <laughs> um, and so the book centers on like a, a small cast like a main cast without any um a small group like three or four thieves that run a small gang called the gentleman bastards who are not a like sub gang of any of anyone else they report directly to this guy called the kappa who is like the head underworld mafioso guy um and they are running like elaborate cons on rich people uh even though they're not supposed to. And they're just like putting all the money in their basement because they don't know what to do with it. Um, They're like, again, they are like an an Ocean's Eleven crew in a way of like, they're just kind of doing it for the high. They don't need the money necessarily. Um, But it feels D&D-ish in the sense that like, it's a small band of people who grow to have like, you know, and kind of, intense personal relationships with each other where they, you know, they will fight for each other and whatever. And there's like a campaign that starts with like one goal. And then like some other villains get introduced that have their own stuff going on. And to like make it interesting, like your goal gets subsumed into theirs. Like, it's And sometimes just, you meet a shopkeeper who doesn't seem like they're going to be a major character, but then they end up being a major character. Correct. <laughs> okay, yeah. Cool. Yeah. 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 Um, so to give you a sense of the flavor of this fantasy world, we open in this prologue with a guy named the Thief Maker selling the orphan thief Lock Lamora to a dude named Father Chains, uh, who is a blind priest of the god of thieves called the Crooked Warden. Um, and this I is saw a- Father Chains at. <laughs> Warped Tour. Well, I don't think we can make this many Warped Tour references. In... I was going to say I saw them play the State Fair a couple of years ago. <laughs> but... um, yeah, because so this... they replaced the lead singer after he like died of that drug overdose. Oh, 
no. And they were never the same after that. Yeah, they found a guy on YouTube. It, it's fine. The guitarist is still there. Father Chains, pretty good band. Um, mm-hmm. The book opens. At the height of the long, wet summer of the 77th year of San Giovanni, the thief-maker of Kamar paid a sudden and unannounced visit to the eyeless priest at the Temple of Pelandro, desperately hoping to sell him the Lamora boy. So there's just a lot of internal caps. There's a lot of epithets. A lot of words. A lot of words. A lot of fantasy words. Later, the 77th year of Gundalo, father of opportunities, lord of coin and commerce gets referenced. Just like a lot of that (laughs) happens early, just to let you know the world that you're in. Right. Um, And Locke is... The book overall jumps between two different times. So you get the prologue and these kind of interstitial chapters where Locke is a little kid uh, growing up over time. Kind of think like the arc of the Ender series. Like he starts as like a six or seven year old. And then by the end of those interludes, he's maybe like 12 or 13. Okay. Um, And... His whole section of the city is like wiped out by this thing called the Black Whisper Plague, which apparently doesn't kill anybody over the age of 11 anyway. <laughs> so neat. Um, and this guy named the Thief Maker, who's a weird old man uh, who lives on like a, in like a cemetery island, um, he takes all the orphan kids and turns them into thieves and then like sells them to various gangs throughout the city. Seems lucrative. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> there, you you get a, a little sense like I was expecting him to be a bigger character and he went away pretty early as Locke, you know, grows up. And as we get to the main timeline, I mean, as your as your player characters lose interest in the <laughs> campaign that you've written and they <laughs> yes. go and do their own thing, they latch yeah, on okay. to Father Chains that are like, can the campaign <laughs> be about Father Chains now? Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and. He gets kind of waylaid as Father Chains is now in charge of Locke. He introduces him to these other two boys whose names are Kahlo and Galdo, I think. <laughs> I'm hoping that my my notes didn't autocorrect or anything. My favorite Muppet duo. Kahlo and Galdo Sansa, they are twins in like sort of a Sam and Eric from Lord of the Flies way where like you can't really tell them apart. So just at one point, Locke, as the narrator, is just like, I'm just going to decide this one's Galdo, and we're just going to go from there. Uh-huh. Um, he introduces them, them to Locke, and then they bring on another kid named uh, Jean or Jean. I don't think he's French, so let's go with Jean, um, who is one of the few thief boys that you meet that actually came from the middle class. His parents like died in a fire or something. And so he actually uses his real name and he has a memory of like actually having things. Um, But he is like a slightly overweight kid and people kind of make fun of him. But he ends up being like a really good fighter um, because he has a really bad temper and things like that. And that's your gentleman bastards gang right there. You Uh got the twins, you got Gene, you got Locke. And later you get a little kid named Bug who shows up in the present. Um, So we're talking bastards in the like... He's a real bastard sense and not in the Game of Thrones. My parents had me out of wedlock. Correct. Okay, yeah. Great. They they relish their roguish lifestyle. Um, I feel like the kind of person who would call themselves a gentleman bastard would be the kind of person who would have raconteur in their like their Twitter <laughs> profile. Or their like Tinder profile. Yeah, they would which would be, be even worse. It would be like not great. <laughs> Father, uh, 
you know, apolitical rock and tour. Mm-hmm. Uh, loves his country. Gentleman bastard. <laughs> Gentleman bastard. Um, I guess what, like, I hadn't really thought much about that title, but th- so the thing that sets their gang apart, um, and you get a lot of this through the through the past interludes. Again, I keep alluding to the present day, quote unquote, where Father Chains has passed away, um, no longer playing the state fair, and... <laughs> His his boys have grown up and they are running these big cons on their own and Locke is in charge of the gang. <clears throat> but in the past, he is training them to, you know, do what is called false facing where they like disguise themselves and actually run cons. They are, he is teaching them to like learn different languages, to learn, to spend time as a priest of every order in the city to learn to fight really well in a way that other gangs are not because so you're like a you're a rogue but you're also a, a man of the world yes they're they are renaissance men mm-hmm. um and that is what's going to allow them to violate the secret piece which is the like don't touch the rich people when you're stealing stuff i the book doesn't in my memory explain why father chains is like yo let's Let's mess up the 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 order of of things. Um, other characters want to upset the order that's been established, but it's uh, as I recall, it's kind of just a thing that Chains wants to do because he can. Um, excuse me. So in the present, Andrew, they are running a con on a rich guy um, where Locke is pretending to be a merchant from a faraway city <clears throat> who's going to help this guy, like. He's going to help him like be a front for selling expensive rare liquor. It f- sort of feels like, "Hey, I can cut you in on some cocaine." Like the deal. <laughs> but like a little more up and up, I guess. Um or maybe like the types of deals that might have gotten cut in like the prohibition era. Like, "Hey, sure. I have a boat of whiskey." Uh-huh. And I can help you sell it if you front me the money to buy the boat or something. Um so in the present day, Locke is pretending to be this merchant named Lucas. He is conning Don Lorenzo Salvaris, um, or Salvara, excuse me, Mamma Mia, um, and his wife Sophia, who's some, some sort of alchemist. Um, and they Does like, alchemists mean anything like more generalized or weird in this world, or are they still somebody who's trying to change stuff into gold they are like working with potions and plants and things uh they are like it's not quite magic kind of a general purpose like wizard slash potions person like apothecary there are like sorcerers and mages that factor in later but these folks are kind of like they're doing science magic basically um they're like i can sense i can kind of sense the character classes yeah right right now yeah yeah um, so these are rich people, and they are going to get had by this con. Um, um, l- because as we've established, cons were only recently invented. <laughs> yes, true. Uh, lying and- lying to people for your own personal gain is totally novel in this world. Correct. Well, they're like, Man. so the thing with the, the rest of the thieves in this world is that they are like, they have recently been brought to heal by the, the guy, the kappa... I want to make sure I get his name right. Kappa Barsavi, who like 
20 years ago or whatever brought all of the rival gangs under his umbrella sort of like Mm -hmm. late game the wire when like everyone's now working for marlo because all the other like heads have been knocked off you know and it's like more profitable if if yes your crews aren't constantly fighting each other sure yes and and uh barsavi is the one who negotiated uh the the big piece with the state um so like the secret police will not mess up all of the thieves and whatever and they're free to go about their business um they so they don't need to lie because they're just kind of like pickpockets and they will cause a distraction and then they'll like rough a merchant up and take his money and then run away um and or or they'll fight and steal from each other because fine whatever but the gentleman bastards are different and they're you know running this play on Mr. Salvara. They do it. They do the neat trick where they stage Locke getting beat up by some of them, so that Salvara will like save him. He's like, "Oh, thank God, you saved me. Let me cut you in on this sweet deal, this sweet fencing <laughs> deal." Um, and then they do this extra trick, which I thought was really clever, um, where they actually pose as the the characters who work for the spider which is like the secret police of the state and they tell the they tell this could get a little confusing so let me know if i don't explain it well they okay (laughs) they dress as new characters who work for the state who work for the duke Mm -hmm. they burst into the mark's house don Uh lorenzo Mm -hmm. and they say listen we know Uh you're being conned Mm -hmm. you're being conned by this dude who has been a thorn in our side forever. We call we literally call him the Thorn of Kamor. And we need you to keep going along with the Khan so that we can trap him. So somebody's he's being double crossed. Well he's but Or he's he's, he's triple crossing them. He's triple How many cro- crosses are we up to? I think I feel like it's three crosses. Well we're not we're not actually being crossed at all because Locke and his buddies are posing as the as the spider. So they have now tricked the mark into so, okay, they, they being are, aware of the con. Okay, they are conning him, and the, and then they're warning him about the con, but the warning is a second is, con. Is a second con. <laughs> it's pretty cool, actually. <laughs> it Like, it's cool, but what if you just conned him the first time? It feels like this, this triple con is maybe a level of escalate because cons are <laughs> such a recent invention. It feels like you are escalating too quickly and you're eliminating like a whole layer of cons that you could use to then get stuff. Well, what they have done is limit. They have per- theoretically, they think they have stopped Lorenzo from going to the secret authorities and being like, Hey, I think this guy might be, you know, kind of, uh, so they're ma- they're making him think that the secret authorities already know about it. Yes. Okay. So that he won't go. go tell them. Okay. Um. And this is where they make the thing that reminded me of Theranos. So, uh, <laughs> Locke dressed as us as a secret spider policeman. Um, he says, "Would you want the entire city to know that you'd been taken in, that you'd been tricked? Would men of business ever trust your judgment again? Would your reputation ever truly recover?" Which just reminded me sure, of... Sure, so this like, is every Theranos board member who uh-huh. became aware of the scam but didn't want people to know that they got scammed. Yeah. 
And that like sense of shame is like what keeps any rich person from even acknowledging that Locke has robbed from them so far. Man. Which is kind of a good observation. Like I, it works well in context. And this book was written, you know, over 10 years ago. And it feels just as relevant right now when we talk about like Silicon Valley hucksters. Um, or any type of huckster, really. Uh, or just a, really any kind of generalized eat the rich sentiment. Yes, correct. <laughs> um, so this is like the main plot line that's going on. It gets interrupted by the introduction of a character called the Grey King. So again, as I said, the module that we were playing was let's steal from a rich guy. Uh-huh. Um, and we're getting interstitial like back in the past chapters, most of which like will set up a character that we're about to meet or will introduce like a weapon that someone ends up using to great effect or some, it teaches us something about the world. Um, Lynch in an interview talked about like not totally being satisfied with how that structure worked for him, mostly because he ran out of like narrative ideas and then just started putting in like world building blog posts, which he yeah. is guilty of. Um, the ones that are character motivated work pretty well. And I have a couple examples I'll get to later. But I do feel like th- because you're using the D&D example sure, sure. to like, structure this whole discussion, it does feel like if I'm writing a D&D campaign and I want to introduce an element and I want it to have some level of impact and like I want it to be anchored in the world, but I didn't plan it out from the start that's when I would use a flashback yeah. to establish, oh, hey, this thing had existed all along and you just didn't know about it. But and now like, you know about it. But that, some of that is like storytelling anyway. No, and I'm, just not, like, I'm, not, I'm not necessarily saying that's bad. I'm just, now that you now that you brought up the D&D thing, I can see all the seams and yes. it's like, well, this is a cool like blanket, but I can see where you did all the stitches. Sure, there's a little, you can you see know, the stitches. The only kind of thing that you can can stitch together is a blanket is a, is a blanket mm-hmm. um yeah he well i think the direct quote he has is i'm very proud of it but all first novels have issues and that is in response to his world building in response to the structure in response to his grasp of gender roles which i would also kind of knock him for a little bit sure um, i mean I, I, I my impression from reading the synopsis was that a lot of like most of the of the primary actors are men and so i i don't know like i assume that most of the women are either in like a damsel in distress mode mm. or like a i don't know tell me tell me a little yeah, bit more and then also you- tell me because the other goodreads thing i wanted to bring up was that patrick rothfuss wrote a big post about this book comparing it to name of the wind mm. and i want to talk a little bit about about that but oh, okay which which like which which which, which path, path sounds better? Would you would you, you walk into a room? A sort see. of like which page would you flip to in the oh the unbranded game book of mm. our podcast that that we're playing? Right Interesting. Now? Mm-hmm. I will flip to the women character book part. Okay, which is a page. Uh-huh. That's the word I chose. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. because the Gray King, which I was just kind of talking about, is this villain that gets introduced who wants to blow up the established structure it's also my favorite vodka brand yeah it's delicious i love gray king vodka uh gray king is also how you get introduced to these things called bond mages which are the the 
most powerful sorcerers in the world. Um, they love martinis. Yeah, they do. They, they love them shaking, not stirred. Yeah, and they always look like a different white man. Oh, um, martinis. They, uh, <laughs> the one that you meet is called the falconer. He has a sick scorpion hawk bird. It's like a hawk, but also has scorpion talons or something that can poison you. Excuse me? Yeah, it's pretty... There's lots of little touches in this book that are like, yeah, you have a pretty good imagination, dude. All right. Weird fantasy hawk. I'm on board. Um, Bomb Mages are super powerful. They This guy ends up causing a lot of havoc in the latter part of the book. But when you meet the Grey King, he accelerates the whole plot where he tells Locke that he knows what's up and he's going to use Locke to advance his plot to, you know, get rid of the kappa and and mess everything up. So this is where we get the first of our like, oh, that was a, a woman character that I thought might turn out to be super important. And okay, she's not. Um, the kappa has a daughter named Nazca who... After some of the Kappas, or Kappa, I don't know. Um, some You've been of, saying Kappa this whole time. Yeah. Just like, just commit just to commit it. Just commit to it. What, once the Kappas, like, lieutenants start getting offed by the Grey King, he's getting very paranoid. He hasn't left his, like, boat hideout because of all the canals. Everything's in, like, these old, decrepit boats and floating stuff. It's pretty cool. <laughs> um, he, uh, I'm the crime king of <laughs> Vemis. Please come hang out in my crappy boat. It's not a crappy boat. It might be like you just said it was a crappy boat. No, I, there's lots of crappy boats around. It's it's a long book. I might have. Got, it's a very long <laughs> book. Um, there's a scene where uh, the cop is like, "Hey, Locke, I know I'm not long for this world. Like, someone's gonna knock me off at some point. I need to consolidate power. You're pretty cool, and I trust you. Would you marry my daughter?" And so that when she's in charge, I know someone with her is like, you know, on the up and up. And before Locke can even like answer that question, the Grey King kills her. And like she gets like poisoned and put in a barrel that's full of horse pee uh, (laughs) and like delivered as a message to her dad. So like a character who is. What is the message? That he's coming for him, I guess. That he's like, okay. he, you know, it's a threat. I I the medium is the message in, this, in <laughs> yeah. this case. So, like, here's a character that could have been a player in the crime sequence that is just like fridged and used as a like as a plot device. Um, a couple of times, the gentleman bastards reference a character named Sabatha. I think is her name, Sabetha, um, who was sent away by Father Chains uh, before the events of this book took place, uh, presumably to do some sort of training somewhere. Uh, She had a relationship with Locke in the intervening 20 years between the time jumps, and we never meet her in this book. And apparently we never meet her in book two, and she doesn't show up until book three. So what I was hungry for for almost the entire book was someone on the level of Locke that was not just another dude. Okay. Um, because the dudes have a camaraderie that I think works. The There is an interesting like byproduct of the chapters in the past, having them all be kids, where even 20 years later, I'm still thinking of them as like teenagers, even though I think they're supposed to be like in their late 20s or early 30s. It's hard to tell. Um, 
but like they feel cool and feel like a good unit but i wish it weren't all just like it just felt very guy heavy um so like know that going in if that is not if that's a if you're looking for something other than that like this might not be the book for you sure um because I don't, I don't think that the book explicitly suffers for it. I just think that people might want other things in their well, fantasy it, in 2019. I, yeah, and I think it's a it's a it's a traditional blind spot for for most fantasy writers. Like I, I think there are a lot of people um, more recently who we've read, like uh, V. E. Schwab and um, Jemison. Yeah, yeah, Jemison, who have but but who have brought a much needed like alternate perspective to to fantasy and sci fi. That has not always been there. That's not been part of the boys club. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally buy that. There, And so in the latter half of the book, we have uh, Don Lorenzo's wife plays a minor part. Um, we meet another noble woman who plays a significant part. But again, like it's a reveal. So we haven't spent a lot of the book with her. Um, there are two sisters called... The, I don't even remember. It begins with a B. The Baragias. It, the, it's uh, it's not. Look it up. I think it's in the the mile long plot it's, synopsis. It's on the not the it's not the Bellagio, which is a casino. Um, what is it? Just keep going, and I'll okay. look up the name. They are like warrior women who end up being integral to like the the late game part of the plot in terms of. I don't. I don't actually the don't want to. Berengias. The Berengias. Yes, thank you. All right. Um, I don't want to spoil like exactly how they're involved because I do think the reveal is pretty good. Um, but they are kind of like they're mini bosses. If you want to again to use like the game motif, like they are not very well developed characters. Uh, they exist to be a threat, and you never spend any scenes talking to them or learning much more about their motivations. Um, they are like powerful women but they are not like developed women characters um so it's interesting in a book where like there are multiple scenes of combat where like men you are rooting for are like fighting against women and that is an interesting thing because they are supposed to be formidable foes but you don't also then have one to root for right um so that's it's an it's an imbalance that is worth mentioning to people reading books in 2019 i think sure 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 um before we get to your th- stuff from Rothfuss, I do just want to talk quickly about a thing I do thought worked well in this book, which is Lynch's sense of theatricality, which plays into like the theme of conning and the theme of like running a show for your mark. Okay. Um, and I think there are ways in which like even for the reader he is putting on a show, there are like there are tentpole scenes that I will remember visually. So like there's an early one because the city is all these like canals and barges and stuff. Um, and crappy a, boats. And crappy boats. Um, there's an early scene where he is talking about a, a monthly tradition in the city where like criminals fight for their life in this kind of gladiator arena thing. Wow, uh, sounds fun. Called the Shifting Revels. Sounds like a real good time. It's a great time. Because um, they Love fight to like, go out on a Saturday night and fight for my life. <laughs> yep. Um, and all of the noble people, because there's not a traditional amphitheater in the city, uh, all the noble people build these giant like barges that have like seating on them, and they like float up in their sick boats and like create an amphitheater <laughs> on the water, mm-hmm. and then the people fight on like platforms on the water, and there's like 
fantasy sharks and stuff that try to kill them. Um, <laughs> it's just a really cool like image in terms of what a glad what is your like take the trope of you know gladiator combat and you know prison exec- prisoner fighting for their life execution as as a storytelling trope and like give it a different context it's used you, as a background can you tell me anything about how a fantasy shark and a regular shark are different um these sharks are like bigger and bigger okay blood thirstier there's other sea like creatures regular sharks are pretty bloodthirsty but okay they're I, just like big big they're boys. evil sharks i think they're called wolf sharks they um, are called sharks though and there's not like a separate name that's there's not a fancy no there's not a fancy word for them because as i as i move into book 14 the <laughs> final book of the wheel of time series I'm struck by how often they'll be confused by a thing like a banana. <laughs> what is th- what is this yellowed fruit with a p- with a peel? What? There is a there is a party in the end of this book where all the rich people are serving food and like they have these things called phantasmavolas, which is when you you cook two animals. And then you like put them on a plate as if it were a hybrid animal. So like you cook a leg of lamb and then you also cook a fish, but then you put it on the plate as if they were the same animal, but like a a weird hybrid or like you cook a, like a pig, but then you cut its head off and put a fish head there instead. And you eat it. When you serve me a serve me a scallop and it's wrapped in bacon, like some mystery fantasy scallop. (laughs) Yes, it's like it is exactly like a bacon wrapped scallop. Mm -hmm. Um, The other, like, again, I think Lynch just has a knack for theatrical dramatic imagery in in terms of plot devices. Which there's another interlude in the past where. Uh, Gene is training and learning to fight and he goes into this place is called the House of Glass Roses where there is this forerunner species or society that we never learn about but they built all this stuff out of like special magic glass um, and that's part of whatever the world building is going on so like it both explains maybe why they don't have more technology than they do because they have these like structures that they didn't need to build. Um, but it also allows some kind of mystery, but this house is like, there's a, there's a maze that Gene has to learn to walk through. That is walls of glass roses that are incredibly transparent. So you don't actually know where they are until you have been stabbed by them. Oh, then that's pretty transparent. And your blood goes like into the wall and like there's just like clouds of blood in all of these walls. Um, so it's just like the imagery is really striking throughout the book. In the latter parts, it gets like pretty violent and there's some incredible dismemberment scenes that happen um, that are also pretty memorable that I won't really talk about because people don't need to hear about them if they're squeamish. Sure. But I do think that like the same quality that allows Lynch to explore what it is to con someone, um, which is how I think he gets away with making Locke feel intelligent. He doesn't need to write a book smart character. He can plan out how a character would come up with an elaborate, successful plan pretty quickly. Yeah, um, I mean, it, just, it feels like the whole point of, of the gentleman bastards is that they are the, the ultimate street smarts. 
Yes. To the point where they even make a fool of the people with book smarts. Correct. Correct. Um, And Locke is not the best fighter because he was so malnourished when he was a kid. He ends, he's always a little smaller than other people. So he ends up being the Danny Ocean of the crew and always has the, has the scheme, always has the plan. Um, but yeah, the I found some stuff about the end of the plot, like a little like, yeah, could have motivated that better. But the idea of like the the little bit of class warfare in the book and the little bit of like the rich people are rich because they inherited it. So even if they're good people, do they deserve to to be spared is a question that's raised. Um there gets to be like a like blow up the city plot that I think is a little underbaked, but um, I did. That's why you have six books after That's this one, I guess. That's why you have six more books. So I want to make sure we leave time to talk about the Rothbus thing because I didn't know about that. What do you got? I mean, there, it's it's. I'm just I'm curious to hear whether you agree or disagree with Rothbus's sure, sure. assessment <laughs> of Lies of Locke Lamora versus Name of the Wind. So he says. Uh, here's the things that the lies of Locke Lamora does better than the name of the wind. One, the beginning of his book is stronger than mine. Seriously, 50 pages into my book, you'll have reached the point where someone is starting to actually tell a story. 50 pages into lies, you know the main character and are halfway into a heist. Yeah, that's true. Okay, two, his title is better than mine. (laughs) Don't get me wrong, the name of the wind is a good title. It's the right title for my book, but the lies of Locke Lamora, that's a fabo title right there. So it, not like doesn't go into a lot of detail. Just says that Liza Locke Lamar is a better title than the name it, of the wind. It has a fun ring to it. Um, you also there's a whole bit of stuff that has to do with like names in this book and and whether or not you know someone's real name. Um, the fact that Locke's name hangs over the book ends up being pretty important. So like as a title, I think that works. Um, and his series title is better than mine too. Gentleman Bastard beats King Killer Chronicles hands down. I don't know that I agree with that either. Like part of that is that Gentleman Bastard is just like it's it's a it is a fedora in word form. <laughs> but King Killer Chronicles, like King Killer Chronicles, like you got those you got that strong like repetition of that sound. It's got what he was looking for in Lies of Locke Lamora. Mm-hmm. Um I think I was actually worried about this book when I saw it. its series was called Gentleman Bastards. <laughs> I honestly, when I was when I committed to reading this book, I was like, I don't what does that mean? Um, and I think there is like some stuff in this early book from a from a language perspective that maybe is a little more juvenile than the later books might get uh, in terms of like there's like there's cursing in the book that's like very uh i just watched all of deadwood and it feels like a little bit of a low rent deadwood at times okay so this is this is another modern this is, cursing this is another rothfuss thing number three this is his last point his cussing is better than mine not in real life. In real life, I cuss like a sailor, but the language in my books is pretty genteel and tame. In lies, Lynch's low-life street thugs are vulgarian vir- virtuosos. They might see- This might seem a little tiring, but it's not. It builds the world. It shows character. It helps make the story feel truly, perfectly grubby and real. I, okay. Um, I don't disagree yeah. that it 
it plays into the class because you are uh, maybe 70% of the book is spent with people of the thief and underworld class. So and there, and there is a variant of not swearing, swearing. Let's call it the Battlestar Galactica yes, school of swearing. It does not do that. No. Where either like you're you're either doing that where you're like inventing safe for TV versions of the F word, <laughs> or you do Wheel of Time where somebody saying the words and I'm quoting this to you Uh-oh. mother's milk in a cup is one of the worst <laughs> swears that you can say mother's milk in a cup Craig some so they will say occasionally <laughs> they will like use religious exclamation so like a thing that we haven't talked too much about is that the gentleman bastards do seem to fervently believe in their like patron god the crooked warden um in the official pantheon of the city or the or the empire i guess um there are only like 12 gods and this 13th thief god is like a rogue god i guess um so sometimes when something bad happens like instead of saying like oh dang someone will just say crooked warden like in the same way that you might say my god oh sure 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 sure. um and when Locke is playing um, his character from out of town, he will borrow that region's similar types of phrasing. Um, some of the some of the the cursing cursing feels a little put on. Um, like you're a fifth grader who just learned how to cuss. Uh, some of it. Um, <laughs> uh, but then there's also just like every once in a while there's a clunker of a line that's not even a curse line, but just after Locke, um, the Grey King in his initial like a- acceleration of the plot, he you know captures Locke Lamora and says, You're gonna do this thing for me. You're gonna you're gonna dress up as me and you're gonna meet the Kappa and like you're gonna Eventually, what ends up happening is he's going to end up trying to make Locke take the fall for him. But okay. Locke doesn't quite know that at the time. Um, and when Locke goes back to the rest of the bastards, he says, we have a new problem. Fresh from the oven and hot as hell. And I just went, <laughs> what? Same, 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 same. A million what? times same. Because like, there are so many clever things in this book that have to do with um, how some of the cons are set up. There is a sequence in the past where they're rolling against a a rival gang of youths who want them to bend the knee to them. The Jets. Sort of. It's sort of a a Sharks-Jets situation. And Locke, who's not good at fighting, uh, tricks this boy into fighting him one-on-one. But he has, like, let out his sleeve so there's extra fabric so that he can use it to actually, like, tie the boy to him. And then his friend Gene can show up to like beat him up. Um, and there's a callback to that later in the book during a big fight where Locke is like, oh, I'm just waiting for Gene. I can just, I'm just going to rope a dope you. And it's like handled really well. Um, Lynch introduces this idea called gentling, which has, it's one of the more fantasy worldy things that he, that he introduces where there's this substance called Wraithstone. That is like some evil magical opioid that like neuters your soul, basically. 
Um, and you see this it, word also means a specific thing in the Wheel of Time books. I'm not going to get into okay. it. Okay. Um, animals. Well, I'm not going to get into it, but but I'm sure that Scott uh-oh. Lynch directly stole this. It's and, very. It might. Yeah. Maybe. Um, where like I'm, for the record, I'm kidding. Okay. Scott Lynch fans, all you Lynch um, out there, please an- leave me alone. <laughs> animals. Don't tweet at me. Uh, animals are gentled, which they've they've been exposed to this like wraithstone dust. And it makes them incredibly docile. Their eyes get all like milky white. And it's how they like train horses for use in the city center. Because otherwise they would be too wild. It used to be a form of punishment for people. But it it like makes people into zombies in such a way that like even this town that is willing to let people fight sharks for their freedom is like, no, we can't do that to people. <laughs> um, and then so he introduces that early. And then that becomes part of like the big save the day plot at the end of the book. So there is a lot of, you can see both the, it's like a double-edged sword of a dude's first novel where he is trying to make sure that everything he introduces has a payoff. Most of them feel good, but you can see the seams of the blanket. You know, you can, you can see him laying the groundwork and then deliberately revisiting it later. Um, it's not as subtle as you might hope. Sure. Um, but it, it also doesn't have, I didn't, I expected there to be more systems. It's not a book rich with magic systems. Maybe the other books get there. Um, yeah, I do think that's, it's it's rare in a, in a fantasy book centric episode of Overdue where we don't spend 30 minutes talking about the magic system and comparing it to a specific Final Fantasy game. <laughs> Yeah, the the bond mage does use a form of magic that has to do with like knowing someone's name, which I know is not unique. To a the real rumble still skin situation. Yeah, other books have used that. Um, and then there are allusions to like larger conflicts that involve the bond mages that will I am I can only assume will come up in later books because they like helped weaken the overall empire. Um, he's pretty much set up a thing where he could like take the characters that make it out of this book and send them to another city, have them start running schemes and then get into another like bigger scrape. I did appreciate that it wasn't like it didn't become a fate of the world plot. It was at most a fate of the city. Okay. Um, which I I am sensitive to how easily a fantasy story can be like, well, I mean, if we don't do this thing, then all of existence is at stake. Yeah, I mean, I think especially, I don't, I don't know if he set out for this to be a seven book series, but if you are if you are planning it to be any kind of a saga, you can't, amping up the stakes that far that fast is, is yes. sort of tough to do. And that's, that's honestly a problem I've had with Star Trek Discovery is... <laughs> Can you guys just like run into a medium sized problem, please? <laughs> I and I did. I also appreciated in this book there were a couple of times where like characters legit had setbacks, and I feel like sometimes when you have a a book about clever con people, it can be easy to just have them succeed at a bunch of stuff because there's to get them over as clever, to get them over as you know better at this than their than other characters in the book it's hard to come up with obstacles for them. Um, mm-hmm. And I think some of the the stories in the past do a good job of either showing an obstacle 
or showing a time where they got it right so that when they try to do it again in the future, maybe it doesn't work or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a better time than I expected with this book, and I do think it works as a standalone novel. Like, if you told me cool stuff happened in the other books, I'd be jazzed, but it, it does not feel like it is setting up a bunch of wheels that I need to, like, follow through on. Book two seems pretty, like, piratey. Oh that's, really? That's all I could pick up. Is it's was it? I was it even called? It's called something. Red like, seas under red skies. Yeah, there you go. It's it's, it's like boats. Like they're boats. <laughs> Lock Lamora and Jean, I think, are like they run yes. off at the end of this book, right? And then they're they do, in boats, they do. and they just are doing boat stuff. Boat stuff. Boat stuff. Sounds good to me. Um, yeah, sounds great. Yeah. Um, you had a you had a question. I did have a question. That you asked me to think about. Oh, sure. In the Slack before the show. So ask me the question. What? Oh, gosh. The thief one. Oh, um, why do we <laughs> like thieves? Why do. Oh, wait, I didn't write it as a question. I so. was expecting you to. Well, that's. And that's why I threw the ball into your court, is I figured <laughs> that because you came up with the question, you would have an easier time phrasing it as in the form of a question, Alex Trebek. So why, why do you... we like fiction that centers on criminals or why people? You think? Wait, Socrates, I was asking you. <laughs> um, in the context of this book, it is interesting because at least at the outset, I don't think that Locke has the explicit moral center that some like, like your Jack Bauer is a character who breaks the rules. And like, yeah, we can look back at 24 and be like, it was pretty fond of torture. We should maybe not be cool with that. He did like torture Um, a lot. But he, but like he was always breaking the rules for the right reasons. And so why do we like movies where people just break the rules? Yeah, or yeah, not I, movies, books, stories, whatever. Yeah, I mean, I, I was thinking about this, and you'd used also like Omar Little as a as an uh-huh. example. Um, the Grey King feels like Omar Little until he gets his motivation. Then he, then I was disappointed. <laughs> I feel like I mean the, the easy answer I think is that we can vicariously break the rules through mm-hmm. through people in stories who break the rules. Like I can I can go to a movie and I can watch. Daniel Ocean do many elaborate crimes <laughs> to the casino man. Uh-huh. But I didn't myself do a crime. I can walk out of that movie theater and go home and eat a legal pizza and go to bed <laughs> and just be cool. It'll be the whole time it'll be cool and chill and legal and no problems here. I love an illegal pizza. <laughs> so that I think that's the easy answer. The the other answer and I think this one is more thematically tied into the book is I think that we can all acknowledge that we live in a society and that society has rules, Mm -hmm. but we can also acknowledge that the systems that, that we have created to govern ourselves are unjust in a lot of ways. Sure. And if you can, especially in like a work in the context of a work of fiction or something, if you can, if you can see someone railing against an obviously unjust system, especially if they're doing it in ways that I don't know, like specifically target the people who are making it unjust, who are 
virtuous in and of themselves. Like, like maybe they have some kind of code. Maybe they are just like, are, are people of honor in some other way. Like, do you know, yeah. do you know what I'm saying? No, like know, it's a, yeah. it's a, it's a, it's a way to see wrongs righted while also, I guess, acknowledging that things are complicated. Yeah. I, I think that's certainly at play here because, the 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 primary motivation for who the who the gray king ends up being has to do with sacrifices that were made to create this system of the of the secret peace where the government would look the other way at crime as long as crime protected the rich or at least left the rich alone and, and and in some and in some ways, and I'm sure to the people who created the system, it seems like a way to solve the biggest problems they were facing at the time. But yes. they still, especially once you once you move on from the creation of it, and people like move away from knowing exactly why it needed to happen at the time. Like there, there are still people who are being done dirty by these systems, and so what are you going to do about them? Yes, and if yes, you yes. Per, if you d- persist in not doing s- stuff for them, then eventually they're going to take matters into their own hands in ways that may or may not be comfortable for you know people who have power in the current structure. Yeah, okay, that's that helps me because I feel like this book is not. It doesn't want to be a book about themes. It wants to be a book about some cool stuff that Locke Lamora did. Sure. And so, like coming into the into our recording, I was like wondering what is going on, whether or not Scott Lynch is like engaging with it fully as the author himself, and maybe this is a thing he grows into. Um, I know that some folks were excited that we were in this book, which means that they are familiar with it and maybe have grown attached to the series. I don't know. Um, but I feel like this book just scratches the surface of, hey, what does it mean for there to be this like stratified class structure in a system where there's a lot of inheritance? Um, and what is it for all of these thieves to basically be orphans where they they have no claim to anywhere that they came from. Um, why wouldn't they all just be thieves? And we don't, and we barely, ex- I don't know that we can even think of too many characters that are not like part of that system. Like there's no one doing an honest day's work in this book. <laughs> um, I think that's by design. Like the closest we get are like some, are some of the alchemists and stuff who are kind of like middlemen. We even meet a like, a money changer character who is like running a big bank who there's a paragraph that reminded me of Jeff Bezos where he just kind of makes money without thinking about it. Uh-huh. Um, and he's not a great guy either because like there's a, there's a line about like the power that he wields despite him not having anything to do with the government kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so like all that stuff's bumping up against this book, even though I think, it's mostly a D and D campaign. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's the. I mean, you of you can you can you can make use of archetypes and of yes, totally themes and story formats without like fully intending to, just by deciding to borrow those archetypes. Yeah, they all carry weight. That's true. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's Eliza Lacamora. Uh, I think folks who are interested in fantasy, like if you've ever played a thief in D and D. Or you've ever like 
I don't know, like dug a crime novel and a fantasy novel, like give it give it a check. See if you see how you feel about it. Um, I think some of the structure stuff is pretty cool. Uh Andrew, if folks want to let us know more about the show, what am I saying? What are you saying? Because you go first normally. I do, and I combined both of our things. So if so, folks, social stuff. Yes, if folks want to tell us lies, they can uh, email us at overduepod at gmail.com. Hit us up on Twitter at twitter.com slash overduepod or facebook.com slash overduepod. Thanks to the folks who made us feel seen this week, Emily, Jeez. Jeremy, Adam, Ariel, you're gonna read all like 350. No, Nick, Amber, Natasha, Chris, Aaron, Stephen, Tim, Kelsey, and many more for reaching out and uh, making us feel seen this week. Andrew, do you real quick want to talk about what people were responding to, just so that folks who maybe don't follow us know? Sure. So, so we put this up on our Facebook and our Twitter feeds, but um, last week. Uh, Choose Co., which is the the company that is behind a series of children's books in which you, the reader, read through them in a nonlinear fashion, kind of choosing your path throughout the books and constructing a sort of uh, ersatz bespoke adventure. <laughs> <laughs> they contacted us and told us that the 10 episodes where we read uh, from their books were uh, violating their copyrights, basically infringing on their on their copyrights, and they requested that we take those episodes down. And um, so we did. <laughs> um, I, I don't want to get like fully into into like fair use, but but the short version is that when you're doing a podcast or a TV show or or, or any kind of broadcast that's sort of like reviewing or commenting upon a work. If you are mostly just discussing it and then like taking passages that illustrate like particular points that you're trying to make, that's generally allowed under the trademark and copyright law. But um, if you are reading or or using like large sections of the work that can like weaken your legal case in in like a fair use sense, like it starts to become like, oh, are you? Are you trying to create like an audio version of a thing that might compete with like our version of a thing? It, it gets it gets fraught. And that's not to say that that our our use of like we think these that our use of these books is like indefensible, but it was just like the the best thing for us personally and for the show to just comply with that request and, and take those episodes down. Yeah. Is that do you think that's I think that's fair accurate, to say. And I think we are both looking for ways for us to make episodes like that in the future, whatever that might mean. We know we have had a lot of fun making those episodes and folks have had a lot of fun listening to them. So we are exploring our options to figure out other books that might be available or what else we could do to like make some funny voices and make some bad choices <laughs> for you. Thank you to everybody who's who's expressed su- support. Um, it, it it means a lot to us. Like we we, this is probably like the biggest show related bummer that we've ever dealt with. Yeah, it's a shame. Like mostly, it's just like, oh hey, it's cool that people are listening to our stuff and that they but, like it. And but it's, as it sucks. But, but as people who make stuff, like I am, you know, we've had to weigh our own interest as the show with like recognizing the rights of creators and stuff like that. So it, the biggest thing I think that we can take away is that you guys are awesome 
and have really reminded us why we like making the show in the first place. So yeah, thank you for that. For sure. Um, Andrew, if folks wanted to recommend the show to someone and they were going to tell them a website to visit, what would they tell them? <laughs> they would tell them to visit overduepodcast.com, which is our internet website, as you mentioned. Up there, we have links to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, our RSS feed. Those are all ways you can subscribe to the show and get new episodes. We also are in Stitcher and Spotify and a bunch of other services. So, you know, pick your poison, I guess, basically. <laughs> um, if you are recommending the show to a new listener, go ahead and check out our new listener page. We've got a bunch of episodes up there that we're particularly happy with and that might help you you know, really get dig into our hold situation. <laughs> um <laughs> And then patreon.com slash overdue pod is our Patreon page. You can support us financially there, or you can just click the books on overduepodcast.com and we get a little bit of a cut of that from Amazon One. You buy those books. Truth. Uh, next week is Children's Book Week. So we're going to be doing kind of a dual episode. You're going to be reading um, Fungus the Big Green, the Fungus, fungus Big the Green Boogie Man. book. The link on the site says the Fungus Big Green Bogey Book. I don't know what the difference is. I don't know. I have a copy of a thing called Fungus the Boogeyman. Okay, so by the, Raymond Briggs. And then I'm yes. going to be reading Dragons Love Tacos by uh, Adam Rubin and uh, Daniel Salmieri. Great. So Sounds that a, good. That is a book that somebody bought me for the child that I will have soon. Woo! Woo. Okay. <laughs> All right, everybody, thank you so much for listening. Thank you again for your support this week. And until we talk to you next Monday, please try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.